This recording is a service of the Allen County Public Library's audio reading service. It is specifically designed for and directed to people who have visual, physical, learning, or language challenges to reading traditional printed materials. Since 1969, Rolling Stone magazine has brought you the finest in award-winning articles and pop culture news. Brilliantly covering diverse hot-button topics, all while reporting the finest in fashion, food, humor, and technology. But it's still Rolling Stone's long-respected history of covering the music and entertainment industry that keeps them as one of the world's most read magazines. It's Rolling Stone Magazine, coming up next on the Audio Reading Service. Welcome. This is a reading of The Economist, and I'm your reader, Mary Kiefer, with the audio reading service at the Allen County Public Library in Fort Wayne, Indiana. Today, I'll be reading from The Economist, January 20th through the 26th, 2024 issue. And now I will begin with Business Beware. What a second Trump term would mean for American business and the economy. When Donald Trump slunk out of the White House in 2021, executives at large American companies sighed with relief. Now that he has won Iowa caucuses by a margin of 30 points, they are digesting the reality that this time next year, Mr. Trump could be behind the resolute desk once again. The Economist has spent the past few weeks talking to these titans. Some are deeply alarmed by the prospect of Trump too, but others quietly welcome the chaos trade. People who run large organizations have to be optimistic. They must find opportunities when others are panicking. CEOs had an uneasy relationship with President Trump, many distancing themselves from his most outrageous pronouncements and tut-tutting about protectionism, even as they enjoyed his more conventional policies. Republicans in Congress may have talked about being the pro-worker party, but in practice, they cut business taxes. It was hard for corporate America to be miserable amid a soaring stock market. If Mr. Trump is indeed elected again, those running big firms plan to keep their heads down. Don't be Bud Light is a frequent refrain after the beer brand fell victim to the culture wars. They would avoid being dragged into Mr. Trump's business councils, dodge presidential photo ops, and get on with making money. True, if Mr. Trump did a deal with Russia that ended the war and sold out Ukraine, that would be bad for Western civilization, but it would reduce energy bills. What's more, Trump's enthusiasts in the C-suite have plenty of grumbles about Joe Biden. Mention Lena Khan, who oversees the Federal Trade Commission, the Antitrust Police, or Gary Gensler, who leads the Securities and Exchange Commission, the Wall Street Police, and they inhale sharply. Mr. Biden wants to raise taxes on companies. His administration also wants to go ahead with the Basel III endgame regulations, which oblige big banks to hold perhaps 20% more capital on their balance sheets. 
sedating animal spirits and damaging profitability. Yet this bullish case for Mr. Trump's economic management is complacent. It fails to recognize how Trump Trumponomics, a mix of deficit-funded tax cuts and tariffs, would work differently today. And it ignores the ways in which Mr. Trump's most chaotic tendencies could threaten America, including its companies. In his first term, the economy did better than many economists, including ours, expected. That was in part because Trumponomics, turned out to be more moderate than the campaign had promised. The economy was also running further below capacity than thought, making it possible to cut taxes without stoking inflation. Strong overall growth and low inflation masked the damage done by Mr. Trump's protectionism. There is no evidence that Mr. Trump has updated his approach. He is still a tax cuts and debt guy. But the economic conditions have changed. For the past two years, the Federal Reserve has been trying to bring down inflation. Though it has nearly succeeded, the labor market remains tight. Today, at 2.8 million more 25- to 54-year-olds are in work than would be if the employment rates of January 2017 had persisted. Then there were 1.3 unemployed workers for every job opening. Today there are only 0.7. As a result, the economy is more prone to overheating. The budget is in worse shape, too. In 2016, the annual deficit was 3.2% of GDP, and debt was 76% of GDP. The forecasts for 2024 are 5.8% and 100% respectively. Should Mr. Trump once again pursue tax cuts, the Fed would have to hike up interest rates to offset the stimulus, making it costlier for businesses to raise capital and for the government to service its growing debt pile. These are the conditions under which Latin American populists bully their central banks to keep rates low, a practice Mr. Trump dabbled in last time. The Fed is supposed to be independent, but Mr. Trump will have a chance to nominate a stooge as chair in May 2026, and a pliant Senate could indulge him. The risk of more inflation would surge, perhaps exacerbated by more tariffs, which would also slow growth. On top of that, big macroeconomic risk are are many others. Firms would not relish further trade restrictions, but some members of Mr. Trump's circle have floated a 60% tariff on imports from China. Lots of companies, like the federal government's support for renewable energy, which Mr. Trump calls the Green New Scam. He has promised the biggest deportation scheme in American history to reduce the number of illegal immigrants in the country. As well as causing misery, this would be a shock to that tight labor market. As ever, saying what Mr. Trump would actually do is very hard. He has few fixed beliefs, is a chaotic boss, and can reverse position several times a day.
In a town hall in Iowa, he said he would be too busy in his second term to seek retribution against his political enemies. That was a few hours after his own campaign sent out an email with the subject line, I am your retribution. He could recognize Taiwan's independence, promising a meltdown in Beijing and a blockade of the island, or he could walk away from Taiwan in exchange for China buying more stuff from America. Businesses often say that what they fear most is uncertainty. With Mr. Trump, that is guaranteed. The unpredictability could make a second Trump term very much worse than the first. His administration would lack establishment types like Gary Kahn, once of Goldman Sachs, to shuffle the president's entree and hide the matter ideas from him. More moments like January 6th are possible, as is a full-on revenge presidency. The idea that in this scenario, business leaders could keep a low profile and focus on EBITDA is fanciful. Employees, customers, and the press would demand to know where bosses stood and what they proposed to do. The administration might in turn take exception to every whiff of criticism. In the long run, the idea that corporate profits can be insulated from societal upheaval is a fantasy. If Mr. Trump is broadly corrupting of American politics and businesses are seen to profit from his rule, that poses a big risk to them in the future. In Latin America, when big businesses have become associated with autocrats, the result was usually that capitalism was discredited and the appeal of socialism rose. That seems unthinkable in America. But so, until recently, did a second Trump term. Banks and the Fed. Begahat weeps. The Federal Reserve accidentally made a free money machine for banks. Time to turn it off. Higher interest rates have brought America's bankers both ruin and riches. Less than a year ago, rising rates caused Silicon Valley Bank and then First Republic to fail, the largest bank collapses since 2008. Yet on January 12th, J.P. Morgan Chase reported its seventh consecutive quarter of record net interest income. One reason the crisis did not spread in 2023 is that the Federal Reserve contained it with a new and generous loan program. Unfortunately, that has come at a cost that the Fed should have foreseen. Thanks to another turn in the interest rate outlook, its intervention has mutated into a free money machine for any bank brazen enough to exploit it. The term fund The Bank Term Funding Program offers banks loan secured against the face value of Treasury bonds. The idea was to stop wobbly banks having to sell Treasuries to raise cash if depositors fled. At SVB, that's Silicon Valley Bank, a fire sale induced by a bank run crystallized losses because higher rates had reduced the prices of long-term bonds far below their face value. But the bank term funding program lends the face value 
rather than the market value of the securities against which its loans are secured. And sure enough, its generosity succeeded in shoring up the system and stopping what could have become a severe crisis. Today, however, the bank term funding program is itself causing trouble. The interest rates rates that banks must pay to borrow reflects with a small premium the one-year interest rate set in financial markets. That is in turn based on predictions of the average Fed policy rate over the next year. Because investors are betting the central bank will cut rates significantly, the cost of borrowing today is only 4.8%. Yet because those rate cuts have not yet happened, the Fed still pays banks 5.4% on their cash balances. In other words, banks can draw loans just to make a spread of 0.6 percentage points, risk-free, at the expense of the central bank. Should the expected rate cut take place, the banks need not suffer a negative interest margin because they are free to repay the loans early, a valuable option the Fed, in effect, gave away for nothing. Borrowers' identity will eventually be made public, so the only constraint on them is the risk to the reputations. But some may consider such shameless opportunism a virtue. Naturally, the use of BTFP has shot up. Since the start of November, outstanding balances have risen from $109 billion to $147 billion. It is not certain this is all arbitrage, but over the same period, bonds have risen in value, shrinking the problem the BTFP was designed to fix. This strongly suggests that the motive for the new borrowing is opportunism rather than necessary. And because the Fed is owned by taxpayers, the free money the banks are hoovering up comes at the taxpayers' expense. What should the Fed do? In the heat of the crisis, it rashly promised to keep the BTFP open until March 2024. It has since strongly hinted that the facility will cease making new loans then. Shutting the BTFP early could undermine the credibility of the Fed's promises, but it should immediately amend the interest rate on new loans, either to track its policy rate or to appropriately price the prepayment option. Either fix would remove the scope for arbitrage. In the next crisis, the Fed should design its interventions more carefully. A central banking rule named after Walter Bagehot, a 19th century editor of The Economist, prescribes that central banks should lend freely to solvent institutions that are threatened by bank runs, against good collateral, and at a penalty rate of interest. By lending at generous rates with a reverse haircut, and to banks that might be insolvent on a mark-to-market basis, the Fed has arguably violated all three of Bagahat's conditions. The crisis in 2023 was ugly, but so was the fix. The mood thing. Why are Americans so gloomy about their economy? Their great economy. 
The vibes are off is a phrase that does not usually appear in rigorous economic analysis, but it has cropped up again and again in serious discussions about America over the past year. From an array of hard data, there is reason to think that people ought to be quite satisfied about the state of the economy. Inflation has slowed sharply, petrol prices are down, jobs are plentiful, incomes are rising, and the stock market is strong. But survey after survey suggests that Americans are, in fact, quite unhappy. They think that the economy is in bad shape and that President Joe Biden is mismanaging it. What gives? Evidence of gloom is everywhere. The figure, watched most closely by economists for an idea of what people are feeling, is a consumer sentiment index from the University of Michigan. For the past two years, it has bounced around at levels last seen during the global financial crisis of 2007 through 2009. Even with an improvement in December, it is still 30% below its recent peak on the eve of the COVID-19 crisis in early 2020. Many other surveys are equally downcast. Every week since 2009, the Economist YouGov poll has asked some 1,500 Americans to assess the economy. Nearly half now think it is getting worse, up from about third in the decade before COVID. Questions focused on Mr. Biden's record yield even less enthusiasm. Two-thirds of respondents to a Gallup poll in November disapproved of his handling of the economy. And all this despite America outgrowing its large developed peers over the past few years. The fact that so many Americans are so dejected about such a strong economy has spawned a cottage industry of theories. A first batch argues that they have every right to feel glum. Some of the figures which matter most to their wallets are just not that rosy. Inflation has eroded their wages. Controlling for consumer prices, one common measure of inflation, average earnings for private sector workers are basically stuck at the same level as in February 2020, right before COVID struck. More recent baselines are even less flattering. Although few Americans would want to go back to a world of COVID shutdowns, many did receive big benefits from the government's spending spree at the time. After-tax personal income is about 15% lower now than in March 2021, when it was propped up by the massive stimulus package passed by Democrats soon after Mr. Biden took office. Another unflattering comparison with the recent past, the aggressive interest rate rises need to tame inflation have made loans for houses and cars much more expensive. Housing affordability hit its lowest in decades last year, surviving as an easy target for critics of Mr. Biden. The Republican National Committee says Bidenomics is pricing our millions of people from the American dream. 
However, as the Biden administration is only too keen to point out, there are many things to like about the current economy. The supposed stagnation in private sector wages is in fact a statistical illusion caused by upward bias in the consumer price index. Use a better alternative, the Personal Consumption Expenditures Index, targeted by the Federal Reserve and real wages, are roughly on their pan-pandemic, pre-pandemic trend. At 3.7%, the unemployment rate is just a touch above a five-decade low. Wage growth has been especially strong for low-income Americans. The S&P 500, an index of America's leading stocks, has been firing flirting with record highs. To judge from the range of indicators, good and bad, Americans do appear to be unduly pessimistic. Ryan Cummings and Neil Mahoney, two economists who previously served in the Biden White House, created a simple model to predict the level of the Consumer Sentiment Index, drawing on inflation, unemployment, and consumption data, as well as stock market performance. Their conclusion was that the index has been about 20% lower than where the data suggests it ought to be. Other models have found a similar discrepancy. This suggests a second category of explanation, that opinion polling and sentiment surveys may have a negative bias. Profound partisan hostility is undoubtedly one factor. In their study, Messrs. Cummings and Mahoney calculated that Republican antipathy toward a Democratic-controlled White House may account for about 30% of the sentiment gap today. Another element may be the tone of news coverage. Ben Harris and Aaron Sojourner of the Brookings Institute, a think tank, studied the relationship between economic data and an index of economic news sentiment. Since 2021, the News Sentiment Index has, like the Consumer Sentiment Index, been notably worse than would be expected from the data, and that may be only scratching the surface. The News Sentiment Index, created by the Federal Reserve's branch in San Francisco, is based on economic articles in major American newspapers. Throw in the vitriol that tends to go viral on social media, and the negative bias might be even more pronounced. A final explanation is that there may simply be a long lag between the post-pandemic recovery and feelings about the economy. It has been a topsy-turvy period. The extreme uncertainty of the COVID years, job losses, school closures, bankruptcies, and illness took a toll on people. Many are still upset by the bruising battle with inflation. Although inflation has moderated, prices are nearly 20% higher than when Mr. Biden took office. The sticker shock takes some getting used to. Messrs. Cummings and Mahoney estimate that a 10% inflation surge reduces consumer sentiment by 35 index points in the year it occurs, 16 points in the next year, and 8 points the year after that. If a similar timeline is now in play, Americans have probably gone about halfways toward accepting their new higher-priced reality. 
It also helps that real income growth has accelerated over the past year, letting them recover some of their lost purchasing power. The Consumer Sentiment Index has been volatile, but it did clearly bottom out in mid-2022, right around the peak in inflation, and it did also post a solid rise in December, even if it remains low by historical standards. Our theory of the case is that if we can continue to maintain a tight labor market while easing inflation and delivering real wage gains, that recipe should show up in improved sentiment. And we think we're starting to see that, says Jared Bernstein, chair of the White House Council of Economic Advisors. The vibes, in other words, may be picking up. Over the wall. More immigrants are arriving from China, India, and Russia. Why? Some immigrants huddled in tents provided by local volunteers. Others slept on the desert floor, facing fire pits burning rubbish. The camp, which in 2023 sprang outside Jacumba Hot Springs, a town in San Diego County, California, was encircled by mountains, highways, and the border wall. When Border Patrol agents came to take people for processing, they had to resort to nonverbal communications. Sit if you have a passport. Step forward if you are traveling with children. If the migrants were from Mexico and Central America, as most used to be, Spanish would suffice. Yet among those who had just walked across from Mexico were people from China, India, and Turkey. Last year seems to have set records for the number of migrants apprehended at the southern border, and Republicans in Congress are demanding reforms to America's asylum system in return for aid to Ukraine. A deal has proved elusive. Slightly more under the radar, the diversity of the Jacumba camp reflects a big change in who is crossing over. In fiscal year 2023, for the first time, migrants from places beyond Mexico, El Salvador, Guatemala, and Honduras made up more than half of all those apprehended at the border. Venezuelans are the largest part of this group. But last year, 43,000 Russians, 42,000 Indians, and 24,000 Chinese also made the crossing, up from 4,100, 2,600, and 450, respectively, in 2021. America's northern border has proved porous, too. In total, some 40,000 Indian and Chinese migrants came south from Canada last year. Migrants take different paths to the southern border, depending on where they come from. An analysis by Idian Sahayan and Gil Guerra of the Niskian Center, a think tank in Washington, D.C., suggests that most Chinese fly to Ecuador, to which they have visa-free travel, before making the long and dangerous trek through Panama's Darien Gap. Panamanian data confirm that the number of Chinese migrants crossing the jungle rose steadily in 2023. In October, El Salvador began to tax African and Indian travelers at the country's main airport. Turkish migrants in Jacumba had flown to Tijuana and then walked into California. 
certain nationalities tend to cluster in specific border sectors. Chinese and Russians often cross near San Diego and Indians near Tucson, Arizona. Migration flows are constantly evolving, says Ariel Ruiz Soto of the Migration Policy Institute, a think tank. He likens the border to a balloon. If you squeeze one side, say enforcing increases in San Diego, the air will flow to another. Migrations will head to Tucson or El Paso. Social media and messaging apps have helped spread information. TikTok and YouTube are filled with videos teaching migrants about roots. Once families know that their friend or cousin has made it, says Mr. Ruiz Soto, they're much more likely to take a chance. Smuggling networks have evolved to serve the increased demand. Notices painted on walls and printed on flyers all over the Indian states of Punjab and Gujarat promise help with moving to America, Australia, Britain, and Canada. Visa services, college admissions, job opportunities. A charter plane bound for Nicaragua and filled with Indian migrants was recently grounded in France, while officials conducted a human trafficking investigation. The Turks in Jacumba admitted they had paid a coyote to show them the way to a hole in the border wall. Mexican cartels are also diversifying their enterprises by getting into the people-smuggling business. Why the surge? A number of trends conveyed in 2023 to diversify illegal migration to America. War and instability pushed people to leave their countries. The Jewish Family Service of San Diego, which runs a migrant shelter, helped more Russians than any group besides Mexicans in the nearly two years since Russia invaded Ukraine. The end of China's lengthy and repressive zero-COVID policy allowed Chinese to travel internationally again. Several Republican politicians have suggested that China is sending spies to infiltrate America. It is not lunacy to be aware of potential agents working for Chinese security services. Last year, the Department of Justice charged two Chinese men living in New York City with operating an illegal police station to monitor and intimidate dissidents. Yet Mr. Selahyan argues that there is no evidence that asylum seekers who willingly give themselves up to border patrol have sabotage in mind. Roughly 70% of asylum applications from China I'll start again. Roughly 70% of asylum applications from Chinese migrants between 2003 and 2023 were granted, suggesting that their reasons for leaving China were mostly credible. In fact, Ecuadorian data show that a disproportionately high share of Chinese migrants are coming from Hong Kong, where dissident where dissent has been punished, and Xinjiang, where Uyghurs have been persecuted. Rather than plotting to undermine America, plenty seems to be seeking freedom. But many, probably most, migrants have a financial incentive to come. Several at the camp in Jakuma said they were fed 
up waiting years for a visa and hope to earn more money in America than back home. As of December, more than 300,000 people who had submitted migrant visa applications were waiting for an interview. The delays are largely the result of the pandemic, which shut down consulates and decimated their staff. More important, there are not nearly enough visas for the number of people who want to come. Yet expanding legal pathways has not so far been part of Congress's spasmodic negotiations. This increasingly global migration to America's borderlands says something about the enduring power of the idea that America is a land of opportunity. For many migrants in Jacumba, there is no other place they would rather risk everything, their money, their safety, to get to. When asked why he didn't try to move somewhere closer to Turkey, Selim Gok, a 20-year-old student, responded matter-of-factly, because I speak English. Super Pigs Wild boar hybrids are raising hell on the Canadian prairies and moving south. It seemed like a good idea at the time, when Canadian pig farmers were told in the 1980s that their animal's gene pool was thin, they turned to wild boars from Britain for fortification, crossing them with an improved strain of domestic pig. This yielded a longer creature with an extra rib and more meat per beast. Then in 2001, the boar meat market plunged. Some farmers, unable to sell their stock, simply released their hybrid pigs into the wild. Today, those pigs' descendants roam the Canadian prairie provinces, a horde some 62,000 strong. They reproduce at a clip and are well adapted to withstand the extreme winters with thick fur and long legs that let them traipse through the snow. Their tusks are as sharp as steak knives. Their meaty breeding lends them a troublesome bulk. Now they are feral. One captured boar weighed more than 600 pounds. They are destructive, opportunistic omnivores who feed by shoving their snout and tusks into the soil in search of grubs and roots. Some Canadian farmers now live in fear of discovering acres of crops plowed up by a herd of pigs. They're turbocharged super pigs, says Ryan Brooke of the University of Saskatchewan. The animals are both smart and adaptable. They have learned, for instance, to burrow for shelter. When we have howling winters, these pigs are under a half a meter or a meter of snow and comfortable, he says. So far, Canada's animal management programs have proved no match for the hybrid pig's fecundity, removing a mere 300 of them in 2023. Mr. Brooks says that getting rid of even 10 times as many would not be enough to keep the super pigs in check. In fact, the pigs have multiplied to such an extent that they have now started spilling over the border to the south. Lori Stevermer, a Minnesotan who grew up on a pig farm, married a pig farmer, and now sits at the board of the National Pork Producers Council, says the scale of Canada's super pig problem became clear to her just last year. 
Farmers and pork producers in the northern United States are worried about damage to their crops and the potential the wild pig herds and the potential for the wild pig herds to be a vector for African swine flu. An outbreak could cost the domestic pork industry $7.5 billion of its roughly $20 billion annual sales, according to a recent study by Iowa State University. The United States already has a feral pig problem, but in the warm South, what concerns John Tomek, chair of the National Wild Pig Task Force in Texas, is that their physiology is actually better suited to cold weather. That makes a new sort of swine coming down out of the prairies into chilly northern states a cause for serious concern. What you're seeing in Canada, he says, is the beginning of a very real, real long-term problem. Japanese housewives, a hidden asset. Legislators are starting to tap a dormant labor pool. After graduating from college, Obora Shuzi, now in her 40s, was building a solid career in an insurance firm. But after giving birth to her first child, she became a full-time mother. I wanted to keep working, but I suppressed those feelings, she says. But unlike precious previous generations of Japanese women, she was unwilling to stay at home. Eight years later, in 2015, she returned to work as a journalist. Ms. Obora represents a hugely important change. Female participation in Japan's labor force used to be much lower than in other big, rich countries. For decades, most women quit their jobs after giving birth to their first child. Outdated tax and welfare systems, as well as cultural mores, underpinned this anomaly. But it is now becoming less pronounced. As Japan's labor force ages and shrinks, women are playing a growing role in it. In 2022, the employment rate for women aged 25 through 39 surpassed 80% for the first time since records began. Meanwhile, the percentage of households with stay-at-home wives fell below 30%, another record. A shift in cultural attitudes toward women and work underlies this change. As talent has become scarcer, working women are more prized. Japanese women's high education levels make them well-placed to take advantage of the shift. 53% of women go to university in Japan, compared with 59% of men. Women are Japan's hidden assets, says Mori Masako, a former gender equality minister. But outdated family laws still serve as a barrier to women's advancement. Japanese tax and welfare policies discourage married women from working. When dependent spouses earn less than $8,900 a year, they do not need to pay in to public pension and health insurance schemes. A government report published in October suggested that more than 1.1 million working women were limiting their working hours and earnings in order to stay under that threshold. The ruling Liberal Democratic Party is starting to take steps to tackle the issue. 
Last October, the government introduced subsidies and other measures to alleviate the effects of the so-called income wall, which penalizes women who go over the million yen threshold. Experts reckon lawmakers will further chip away at the income wall next year, following a five-yearly review of the pension system. But such policy updates alone may not be enough to entice millions of Japanese housewives back to the workplace. Oshima Yasuko of Recruit Works Institute, a research outfit, reckons a bigger shift in corporate culture is needed. In a study in 2019, she showed that among housewives who re-entered the workforce, some 30% soon quit because they found it difficult to balance work schedules with child-rearing and household chores. Re-entering the workforce after a pause is also hard because Japanese firms tend to look with suspicion on candidates with blanks on their resume. Ms. Obora, who suffered many rejections before landing her journalism job, describes how demoralizing that can be. I used to think if I became a housewife once, I'll always be one. It would help if Japanese men and women shared their domestic burdens more equitably. In 2022, just 17% of men eligible eligible for parental leave actually took it, compared with 80% of women. Among married couples, Japanese women spend five times more time doing chores than men. In Germany, the gap is three times. When the government speaks of gender equality, the emphasis always seems to be on making women do more, says Moki Zuki Ri, a former housewife who now works in marketing. When Kashida Fumio, the prime minister, announced a plan last year to invest in reskilling for those on parental leave to support their transition to the workforce, many housewives complained that they were already overloaded with domestic work. I used to think that being a housewife must be easy. I couldn't have been more wrong, says Miss Obora. Women such as her are part of a major long overdue socioeconomic change. More is required from both sexes to make it go faster. North Korean belligerence, war talk from Seoul. The two Koreas are probably not bent on fighting. King Jong-un, North Korea's dictator, ended 2023 with war on his mind. Speaking to assembled party grandees on December 30th, he declared that the North and South were now two belligerents in the midst of war. In early January, he claimed to have no intention of starting a real conflict, but would have no hesitation in annihilating South Korea if it did. Since Mr. Kim's bromance with Donald Trump, then America's president, fizzled out after an ill-starred summit in Hanoi in 2019, such belligerence has become increasingly common. Hardly a month passes without Mr. Kim testing a fearsome weapons or threatening to annihilate South Korea. Yet a recent commentary published on the website 38 North by Robert Carlin and Siegfried Hecker, veteran North Korea watchers, raised eyebrows by saying Mr. Kim had made the strategic decision to go to war. That is hard to judge and perhaps overblown, yet North Korea is certainly more threatening than ever and grows more dangerous by the day. 
Its war machine is getting stronger. In the past two years, it has tested an unprecedented number of missiles able, able to fire nuclear weapons at South Korea and America. In November, it put a military satellite into orbit, the first step towards building a network that would provide vital military information. Already in 2024, it has conducted artillery drills and a test of what state media claim is a solid-fueled intermediate-range ballistic missile that is topped with a hypersonic warhead. Accompanying this military buildup has been a hardening North Korean attitude toward the South. Reversing decades of policy, Mr. Kim now claims that Northerners and Southerners no longer belong to a single Korean people, and that talk of unification with the South's governing clan is pointless. North Korean propaganda sites and radio stations targeting the South have gone dark. On January 15th, Mr. Kim ordered the closure of three departments that deal with the South. The Arch of Reunification, a garish monument to inter-Korean rapprochement straddling the motorway between North Korea's capital and the demilitarized zone separating the two countries, will be torn down. Yet none of this need suggest that Mr. Kim really wants war. He is more comfortable than ever, notes Christopher Green of Leiden University in the Netherlands. China provides food and industrial imports to keep his country going. America, distracted by Ukraine, Israel, and the Red Sea, pays it little heed. And North Korea's new friendship with Russia is going swimmingly. On January 17th, the two countries' foreign ministers met to follow up on a powwow between Mr. Kim and Vladimir Putin, his Russian counterpart, held last September. North Korean munitions have been sighted on the battlefields of Ukraine. War would be costly and risky for Mr. Kim, even in the unlikely event that America stayed out of it. Any victory would be... Pyrrhic. What could be more destabilizing for his totalitarian regime than absorbing 52 million people with a passion for democracy? Mr. Kim is probably sticking to North Korea's pattern of using aggression to get leverage before eventual negotiations with America, says Go Myung Hyun of the Asian of the ASAN Institute, a think tank in Seoul. Although America insists that denuclearization must be on the table and North Korea clings to its nukes, neither side is keen to talk. But Mr. Kim can afford to wait, perhaps for the return of Mr. Trump. In 2010, North Korea shelled Yang Pyong, a nearby South Korean island, killing four South Koreans. Robert Gates, then America's Secretary of Defense, recalled in his memoirs how the South Koreans needed to be talked out of a disproportionately aggressive response involving artillery and airstrikes, which he feared would trigger an escalation. Yoon Suk Yeol, now South Korea's president, promised on January 16th to respond to provocations with a punishment multiple times. Times more severe.
Such an overreaction would be more likely to start a war than Mr. Kim's wild rhetoric about conquering the South. Donald Trump and the economy, fiscal Trumponomics. His tax cuts would add to American growth and debt. Of the many differences between Donald Trump and Joe Biden, perhaps the easiest to quantify has to do with tax policy. Mr. Biden has long pledged to raise taxes on both the wealthy and companies. Mr. Trump's main legislative achievement from his presidency was a tax cut package in 2017. Unsurprisingly, many corporate bosses prefer Mr. Trump on taxes. The big economic question is whether they are being short-sighted and overlooking America's fiscal health, which they also profess to care about. When Mr. Trump was elected in 2016, net federal debt was about 75% of GDP. When he left office in 2021, it was 97% of GDP. The Congressional Budget Office forecasts that it is on track to hit an eye-watering 181% three decades from now. At that level, the government's annual interest payments are expected to exceed its combined spending on national defense, education, and highways. That raises the risk of a financial crisis, hardly an ideal environment for business. Critics of Mr. Trump point to the debt trajectory on his watch as evidence of fiscal mismanagement and warn he would make things worse if elected for a second term. Many of his tax cuts are set to expire at the end of 2025. The individual income tax rate for the highest earners will revert from 39.6% from 37%, for instance. If Mr. Trump returns to office, he will try to make the cuts permanent. The CBO estimates this would add $350 billion or so to the deficit annually over the next decade, equivalent to 1% of the GDP. Yet this line of criticism misses two important points. First, the accumulation of debt under Mr. Trump largely stemmed from the stimulus launched soon after COVID-19 struck, which countered some of the economic drag from the pandemic. The comparison is unflattering for Mr. Biden. He expanded the stimulus in 2021 when there was less need for extra fiscal support from the government, and this additional spending helped stoke inflation. Second, it is not enough to look at taxes alone. The interaction between taxation and growth lies at the heart of debt sustainability. The overriding driver of our fiscal problems is that we don't have enough growth, says Stephen Moore, who helped design Mr. Trump's tax cuts in 2017. We want to bring jobs and capital here, and yes, we can grow out of this. Many economists dismiss such talk as hyperbole. After all, in the 2016 election, Mr. Trump vowed that deregulation and tax cuts would unleash a torrent of economic growth. In reality, America's growth rate ticked up just slightly in the two years after his tax law went into effect before COVID erupted. 
But this extra activity did help to boost America's fiscal revenues, offsetting some of the cost of the tax cuts. Thinking you should tax away to a lower deficit is misleading, says Thomas Philipson, an economic advisor in Mr. Trump's administration. Mr. Biden's approach offers a counterpoint. He has called for a range of tax increases, including raising the corporate rate from 21% to 28%. That may be counterproductive, says Erica York of the Tax Foundation, a think tank. Ms. York and her colleagues estimate that Mr. Biden's tax proposals would lower America's debt-to-GDP ratio, but also shrink the economy by 1.3%. Whereas Mr. Trump's tax cuts would, if permanent, push up debts, but expand long-run GDP by 1.2%. It is not a simple trade-off either way. A true cleanup of America's finances would require reforms to big social programs, especially income support for pensioners and state-provided medical insurance, which together account for nearly half of federal spending. Here, Mr. Trump and Mr. Biden look indistinguishable. Both are silent on serious changes to these programs because both are well aware how deeply unpopular any cuts could be. We have time for one or two letters. Measuring Migrant Numbers, How to Detoxify Migration Politics, was a thought-provoking piece on an important issue. However, the statistic you cited on international migrants didn't capture the true growth of this population. In 1960, 3.1% of people lived outside their country of birth. You said, and today it is 3.6%, a figure that has barely changed. That may be true, but the global population has grown more rapidly from 1960 to the present day. So for context, in 1960, there were approximately 75 million international migrants, and in 2021, there were 281 million, an increase of 275%. This is an alternative measure that may help us appreciate the scale of the migration issue more comprehensively. That was written by Chai Hulin from Taipei, Taiwan. Kamala Harris should indeed consider seeking a second term as vice president. Voters lack confidence in her, a big danger to Mr. Biden, Biden's electability. Selecting someone like Evan Bayh, Tom Daschle, or Susan Rice for a vice president would completely change the campaign narrative, providing a universally respected commander-in-chief in waiting. Ms. Harris could become Secretary of State or a UN ambassador. That was written by Thomas O'Brien from Charlottesville, Virginia. That's all the time we have for today. This has been Mary Kiefer with a reading of The Economist. I hope you've enjoyed today's reading from the audio reading service of the Allen County Public Library in Fort Wayne, Indiana.